Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. I'm Tom Charpentier, your host today, and across the uh, across the way from me is... I'm Chris Henry, one of your other hosts, and I'm also the museum programs representative. And uh, I'm Ben Page, the museum collections curator here at the museum. Ben, glad to, glad to have you on. Ben's uh, my partner in crime on the museum team, and uh, this is your Green Dot debut, I believe. Uh, yes, sir. That's correct. Awesome. Well, welcome aboard. Glad to have you on here today. And Chris, you're kind of uh, playing the dual role, as we sometimes do, of host and guest, uh, because we are uh, uh, we're talking about something that you've had a lot of involvement with, and of course, Ben, as a curator, has had a ton of involvement with, and that is the uh, the, the rededication and some um, really amazing history that we've discovered about uh, our Corsair and how we how we Re, redid the exhibit around that. And I always say here at EAA, I, we have these amazing coincidences and these amazing things that we discover. And I'm not sure if we find the history or if the history finds us, but uh, <laughs> regardless. I think it's a little bit of both. And we'll, I'll even tell a story around that uh, about the the day before the dedication, something uh, pretty wild that happened while we were standing behind some curtains here. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I firmly believe uh, uh, there is some sort of magic here sometimes where, where amazing things just kind of happen. Uh, this one, there's a little bit of that. I think there's a little bit of um, knowledge and research that took place, I, and and we'll get into all that here in a little bit. But uh, absolutely, first, you know, I, I think uh, let's uh, talk to Ben here. And Ben, just a uh, just a brief question. You know, how, how did you first? It's a question we ask everybody, sure. uh, so I don't want to blindside you. But you know, how did you first get interested in aviation? Like, where did that first passion come from? Uh, well, gosh, uh, I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan, originally. Uh, that is the uh, Kalamazoo Aviation History Museum. They go by Air Zoo these days, of course. Uh, they had a just a wonderful collection of, uh, well, as these things go, World War II aircraft. This is the early ni- early mid '90s, and um, it was the it was the connection between. Um, my grandfather being a World War II veteran, seeing a lot of photos and video of uh, that he showed me. And then, you know, you go to this museum and there's a wildcat right there on the ramp. And, you know, it's not it's not just a picture. It's not static. It's 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 moving. It's living. It's breathing. It's making noise and smoke. So basically, you know, to spare you the details, uh, you know, a, lot, a number of years and a couple of different uh, positions later, here I am in Oshkosh. Awesome. Awesome. Doing some pretty fun stuff. Uh, we've been, we've had episodes where we, we dedicated the Huey and we did it, you know, the uh, a talk on the history of our Huey aircraft that we have. And, uh, uh, and today we're going to talk a bit about our, uh, our Corsair. Yeah. So I, I guess the question to both of you, cause you've, you know, again, you're both museum staff, you both have involvement with the, uh, with the aircraft going way back, but, uh, tell us a little bit about before the, the most recent re-restoration, rededication and all of that, what, what's the history of our Corsair as we knew it up until then? Um, so uh, the, the part that I knew in, and I also uh, oversee our, our docent. Uh, so we have had uh, we have a handbook. Our volunteers that do tours, we have a handbook for all of our new folks that come in, and and um, you know, sort of like, hey, here's the airplanes we highlight on a tour. Here's some uh, background about each aircraft, and then you know, here's what we know about it. Sometimes you don't know everything about an airplane. Sometimes the records are kind of a little murky. Um, on our Corsair, I think what was interesting is we really didn't know um, a lot uh, at that time. Uh, we knew that it 
was produced too late for the war and that possibly had done something post-war, maybe even during Korea. And that's really all we talked about. Uh, when we would do a tour of the Corsair, uh, we just mainly called out, uh, we knew it was a Reno uh, aircraft that yep. had raced. Uh, it was, the fir- I believe, the first Corsair to actually race at Reno. Yep. Uh, late 1960s through the early uh, 1970s, yeah. Did it have any uh, major modifications for racing? Any radiator mods or anything like that? No, that's the beautiful thing. Um, not only was it, as best we can tell, the first Corsair to race at Reno, but it was bone stock. Uh, that aircraft is, uh, I'm sure some parts have been swapped out. I haven't taken a deep dive into the maintenance records, but uh, as far as we can tell, no, no, ma- no major modifications. Uh, this is uh, before we get into... Uh, I think what you can do with a P-51 these days or, uh, you know, the the, he- the really heavily modified aircraft, but no. And uh, from there, it went to uh, to the Edwards family, uh, Connie Edwards and his son. And though and they are the folks who actually donated it, donated, excuse me, uh, it to us here in Oshkosh in the early 1980s. And just for those of you who have those of you listening who haven't been to our museum or haven't haven't seen photos of it, uh, the way that we uh, had had it displayed and and in some ways continue to have it displayed is basically there's a mock aircraft carrier in the in the corner of the Eagle hangar. Um, so we have it on a, a, a deck and the wings are folded. And I, I, I don't know why I'm describing this. Why don't you guys kind of take <laughs> us through how we had it before? Um, but no, that no, that's a great uh, lead in. Um, and it's a great lead into to what we were doing with the aircraft up to that point. We received the aircraft in 1981. It really, really excuse me, didn't formally go on display until our Eagle Hangar edition was completed in the late 1980s, early 1990s. And uh, how it was used at that point was as a representation of carrier naval aviation during World War II. Uh, Corsair, of course, is a, it's a very distinctive aircraft. Uh, No other aircraft quite looks like a Corsair. And uh, I think when a lot of folks see Corsair, they think, uh, you know, it's a Navy aircraft, it's a Marine aircraft. So that is what this aircraft did. It was put in a a representative scheme, a scheme that was put on an aircraft flown by Ken Walsh later in the war. Our aircraft is a is a later model of the Corsair. And that's basically what the aircraft did. It was, uh, yeah, put in this beautiful setup, as you said, Tom. That's basically how the aircraft was until uh, I think me and Chris started opening books here. <laughs> It was, yeah, really interesting. And anything, anybody that works in a museum knows, uh, you know, there's, uh, or even studies this stuff knows that a lot of times there's stories that creep out and then, you know, some of them are right, some of them are wrong. There's always some myths, some stories. Sometimes there's truth to the myth, uh, but it's not the full truth, you know, so... Um, what happened was during uh, during the COVID lockdown, um, webinars became more and more popular, and Ben and I were approached to do one on the museum collection. And we thought it'd be kind of fun, uh, A, not only to give just general background about the, the aircraft and maybe some artifacts, things like that during the collection, but also, you know, let's kind of tackle like, oh, I've always heard this. Let's actually kind of deep dive in and let's see if... Either it's true or uh, it's it's not true, and we can kind of talk about that and how that happened. And uh, and I the first one we did I remember was the Huey, and it was because we had opened the exhibit, uh, uh, letting everybody in on a dark secret. We cheated a little. Uh, we had all that Huey knowledge just firsthand because we had just opened the exhibit. Uh, so we went with that for our dry run just to make sure we could do this. We knew what we were doing. And then we're like, all right, second one, what should we do? And um, someone had, I think, suggested on the first one if we would do the Corsair. I think the Corsair is one of those planes that I think a lot of people saw it in Black Sheep Squadron and stuff like that. You know, and uh, it's it's a romanticized aircraft. And uh, and we had a we have a beautiful example here. And um, we said, yeah, you know, so 
as we would prepare for these, Ben brought over the pile of records. And uh, and Ben, don't let me mistell the story here. Uh, I, I think you and I were just chatting and we, we kind of, in our prep work for these webinars, we kind of make like a skeleton of uh, of the of the presentation, and then we kind of fill in like, oh, we should talk about this, and we really need to talk about that. And well, yeah, and and one of those stories was uh, was a story that you were familiar with, but not but not myself. Uh, was the story of uh, Lieutenant Junior Grade Thomas Hudner and uh, Ensign Jesse Brown during the Korean War. And, and Chris, you tell the story so much better than I do, and and I can jump in then uh, to uh, to what to what we found. Sure, you know, it was one of those ways where we're we're trying to to make sure that we we tell really great. Pers- personal stories in this airplane, sir, the, the design type, you know, absolutely had one. Um, December 1950, during Korea, Jesse Brown, this country's first uh, African-American naval aviator, uh, was flying his 27th combat mission, flying ground support, close air support for uh, Marine and Army uh, soldiers on the ground. And uh, his aircraft, they believe, was hit by small arms fire. His formation uh, included people like Marty Good. Uh, Tom Hudner was flying his wing that day. They saw he was trailing what they assumed was fuel. He ended up having to make kind of at the end a dead stick landing uh, on a snow-covered hilltop, mountaintop in uh, Korea. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, this was uh, during the Battle of the Chosin Reservoir. That, right? That's exactly so, it, so yeah. In the winter in, in Korea. Yeah, one of the worst winters they had seen there in years. As the, they were circling, uh, one of the uh, the wingmen climbed higher to radio for a, a rescue helicopter. They could see that the Jesse was down. Uh, they weren't sure he'd survived at first because it was a pretty hard impact. Uh, but then they saw the canopy come open and Jesse was waving his hands, but he wasn't getting out of the airplane. And right away they said, you know, something is wrong. And, and keep in mind, you know, you're in the vicinity of an enemy. Um, and there's a few heroes that we really got to call out in this story. Um, of course, we're going to call out Jesse and Tom. But we also need to call out the helicopter crew. This helicopter, you got to remember, you're not talking about uh, an EC-145 or something that or that's being used now for rescue. Um, helicopters were still a little bit of a newer technology in the military hands. Uh, and this is a pilot who... You know, daylight's closing in on him. Uh, he drops off his crew, flies solo over, uh, you know, some pretty hostile area to try to get to these guys. Uh, so we can't uh, we can't uh, sort of forget the helicopter crew in this story. But um, Tom Hudner, watching all this from above, uh, sees smoke, which he thinks uh, obviously where smoke there's fire. They kind of figure out that Jesse maybe can't get out of the aircraft. Talk about bravery. He keys his mic and uh, just says, "I'm going in." And uh, he made a first pass to make sure he felt he could put the aircraft down. On the second pass, he, he made a wheels-up landing next to Jesse, um, gets out, fights the uh, higher snow and cold, uh, gets to Jesse. They're on the ground there for about 40 minutes or so. Uh, he puts out the fire, tries to warm up Jesse, uh, keep his spirits up while they're waiting for a helicopter that could bring an ax to hopefully cut uh, uh, some of the aircraft away from Jesse, who was pinned in the airplane. Uh, and in the process of all this, uh, Jesse passed away, uh, whether it's internal injuries, hypothermia. Uh, the helicopter did get Tom uh, out of there. Unfortunately, uh, you know, Jesse lost his life there at the crash site. Tom Hudner um, actually wanted to go back after the weather cleared, uh, but they would not, uh, would not, they couldn't do it. It just, the territory would just not allow it. Tom eventually came home and was awarded the Medal of Honor for attempting to rescue his down wingman. Uh, that's a pretty brave move. And something I always like to call out is you have a guy willing to risk their lives for one another in Korea. And back here in the United States, these two guys couldn't drink from the same water fountain. 
I mean, that's where we were in 1950 in this country. Um, and um, Tom didn't really think he deserved a Medal of Honor for his actions, but uh, uh, he was awarded it by the President of the United States as well as Daisy, uh, Jesse's widow, uh, was there uh, at the ceremony as well that day. So really amazing guy, an amazing story. So we wanted to make sure we told that because this was all wrapped into uh, the Corsair story. This is part of the Corsair's heritage. So uh, we just think it's a powerful story. We wanted to include it in a webinar, and that's how we first started talking about it. No, and it's a it's a it's a great example of the aircraft being used in a war that uh, you know is still widely regarded as the Forgotten War. So that was why it made it into the the the, the skeleton, the script, as you put it, Chris. So uh, I remember very distinctly uh, as we're preparing for this webinar, um, uh, there's a there's a there's a there's a stack of uh, filing uh, of files and uh, Manila folders, probably about uh, about a foot high, give or take. Um, And right on top of that uh, was just a little just a treasure trove, uh, something we very rarely get uh, with uh, with our military aircraft. Um, It was the original uh, U.S. Navy Bureau of Aeronautics maintenance logbook for that aircraft. It had obviously been to hell and back. Uh, The corners were dogged. The binding had obviously been reinforced over the years. There was a big piece of tape holding that binding together. And right there on that binding was written um, 97259, our Corsair's bureau number. Uh, Open the book, you know, and the first thing you're looking for, you're looking, oh, when was this aircraft accepted? Uh, You know, who signed off on it? How many hours has it got on the airframe? And as I uh, turn, you know, there's the typical story. Oh, it came right off the line just at the end of World War II. The Navy basically put it in a box just in case they needed it later. Well, turns out they needed it later. Um, and one of the first names I come across as I'm looking is is the name Hudner. And uh, Chris had just finished telling me the story uh, that he just told uh, in his office. And I said, Chris, what was the name of that uh, of that fellow who uh, who crash landed his airplane again? You know, to save uh, to save his comrade. He said Tom Hudner. And uh, Chris, I, I I believe I passed you the book then and was you know just gesturing gesturing uh, furiously at at uh, at that name because. And then you started reciting other names. Uh, there is there's Marty Good uh, who was also in the same squadron. There's uh, Dad Fowler, the squadron senior pilot. And as we were turning these pages and looking all of these names that you know we knew were associated with the Jesse Brown Tom Hudner story it, it it just blew us away so all of them flew our airplane yes everyone who uh who knew who flew with Jesse in that squadron that squadron was uh was navy fighting uh VF32 sat in the cockpit of our aircraft uh some between uh the spring of 1951 and uh I want to say the summer of night uh, later into that summer and fall and first thing we did was we tried to put some dates together the the aircraft uh that Jesse had been flying and Tom crashed were lost on December 4th 1950 Tom received the medal in April if memory serves and the squadron had rotated back in the spring of 1951. Well, then the thought becomes, well, obviously they needed two new Corsairs. So the natural uh, conclusion then is that our aircraft was, was, was taken out of storage and rotated into VF-32 as a replacement for one of those airframes lost on December 4th, 1950. And so uh, we started looking up the Navy records, and VF-32 only lost two Corsairs yes. on that cruise, and those were those two aircraft. Wow. So our aircraft is a direct replacement for the two lost on the Hunter Brown mission. It's also interesting that uh, I, I 
based on my understanding of how naval aviation works today, the same people usually wouldn't take two cruises together in the same squadron these days. But so it's interesting to me that 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 same cast of characters went back out again with the same squadron on the same ship. Oh, it's, it's, sorry, what was the ship again? Uh, that was the, the USS Leyte. USS Leyte, Essex class. And in, to kind of answer your, your question a little bit, Tom, without getting too far off topic here, um, the, the Navy, you know, wasn't the same Navy it was at the end in 1945. Uh, that period between 1945 and 1950 was a huge, uh, uh, was a huge sink of, uh, of manpower. And mm-hmm. while the Navy had a lot of ships and a lot of aircraft, you can't do any of that without without trained personnel. So it's it's not terribly unusual for me, for me to see that the Leyte, which was one of the newest uh, aircraft carriers to uh, come out of uh, at the end of World War II, uh, was one of the more active aircraft carriers uh, rotating uh, between the Mediterranean Sea. That's where the Cold War and uh, the Iron Curtain is starting to come down over Europe. Um, and to be almost yanked out of the Mediterranean to go to, go to Korea, squadron, planes, pilots and all. So yeah, and and that aircraft actually stayed, and our aircraft actually stayed with the Leyte. Uh, she rotated to a sister squadron, VF-33, um, and stayed with the Navy really well into the 1950s. But to uh, to get back, um, Chris, you pulled one of your uh, one of your miracles. If there's one thing I've learned about Chris Henry across the table from me is that he always knows somebody. <laughs> And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that someone in, in this case was uh, someone who was working on the props for um, a movie which is being made uh, about uh, about the story of Tom Hodner and Jesse Brown. Yeah, uh, John Anderson, uh, who uh, was at the dedication, uh, was actually, um, I'll butcher what title he had, but uh, he basically was in charge of props, costumes, and then I believe he did some work on the aerial unit. Um, and uh, I kind of mentioned this to him and he's like, wow, you're kidding, you know? And I'm like, yeah, and I knew he had been working on this, uh, on this film. And he goes, well, I'm actually gonna be with, uh, with Tom Hudner third tomorrow. And I'm like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, I'll have him call you. <laughs> uh, and before I knew it, there we are on the phone with Tom Hudner third, Tom Hudner's uh, uh, son, the pilot's son. Uh, unfortunately, uh, all the veterans who you know, are involved in the story are gone. They're, they're all deceased, but their families are still uh, with us and still very active in helping tell that story. And um, so there we are on the phone with Tom Hudner third, who, um, when he hears this, uh, uh, I'll use his phrase, uh, things got a little dusty. <laughs> uh, you know, it was, it was emotional to find out that, um, you know, to have that backed up. Well, while he was on the set of the film, he had brought some artifacts of his dad's, including his dad's logbook. Um, so when we told him the story, he was able to open up his dad's logbook to the dates we said and confirm that, yep, 259 is in my dad's logbook on that day. Uh, so we were able to, and using another veteran's logbook, uh, Mr. Savoli's uh, family, they also confirmed same dates that uh, our logbook show that he flew the airplane as well. So it's always nice to have that sort of confirmation from multiple sources. Oh, that, absolutely. That, yeah, they were in this airplane. Uh, and then uh, we found one of the cruise books and we were able to actually find a few photos of our airplane uh, in VF-32 and VF-33 uh, during its different time periods. So to our knowledge, is, is there any other surviving Corsair that's linked to um, to this particular story? Not that I know that I I don't want to speak indefinitely because I don't know. Sure. Maybe there's other Corsair owners and operators out there who 
have the same thing we do where they have it painted a certain way to honor a certain vet and they've never done that deep dive. So I wouldn't want to say yes or no. There are none that have definitely call it out right now. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's only about five Corsairs restored, preserved that actually wear their real, their authentic paint job. It's a pretty rare airplane to see it painted in its real scheme. Well, I guess that's a good segue into what we did next, right? Um, after, <laughs> after figuring that out. So, so I'll tell this segue. I want Ben to, to chime in wherever you want here. But uh, we're sitting in my office and we called Ron in, our museum director, um, and soon we found ourselves having to present uh, in front of our SLT, including Jack, uh, including John Hopkins. Uh, John Hopkins, which was probably the worst person to want to talk in front of about it, because uh, when this airplane was restored in the 80s, John, you got to remember, you know, the 80s were a bit different of a time for warbirds. People were kind of painting stuff a little bit differently. John really set the bar with the aircraft restoration. He really worked hard to make sure we had the accurate, you know, colors and everything like that. It was a gorgeous restoration. And we basically, and he was very proud of this airplane. And we basically had to say, John, uh, we, you know, you did a gorgeous work on this airplane and now we want to do it over again. Uh, and I was really intimidated. I, and I know I talked to Ben ahead of time. I'm like, man, I am really worried about about insulting John. Uh, and instead, I think what John looked at it as is here's another chance to set the bar again, uh, to to repaint the aircraft in its markings that we know it, it had. Did I, did I misstep anywhere there, Ben? Is it no, no, that's, 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 how I, that's how I remember the proceedings, uh, for lack of a better term. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we came to them and said, look, yeah, we had some diagrams Ben and I made up uh, with some photos and said, this is how the aircraft aircraft should look uh so slt and everybody agreed that this was an opportunity to to it's not the easiest thing the easiest thing would just be to put some pictures up and say here's how it should look uh to do it right is the harder thing which would be to take it over to the week's hangar uh and have it uh have it stripped and repainted uh in the markings that uh that we could verify um and that's that's the route we did uh i think early on we knew that you know if you do it you got to do it right. And uh, so we consulted uh, the National Museum of Naval Aviation. Uh, Dina down in there uh, helped us. Uh, John Bernstein the, and um, and others at the uh, National Museum of the Marine Corps in Quantico. Uh, ben Christie, folks like that, uh, stepped up with a lot of good information for us. Stuff like, you know, the fonts, the sizing, uh, the location. And even that, uh, Ben, I know... Uh, we were all, you know, if you want to, if you want to really rack your brain and you want to really consume beer and uh, and and just go crazy, um, try to get markings um, for a specific uh, naval aircraft during Korea for one squadron when you only have limited pictures of your actual aircraft. Uh, the squadron markings seem to be a little bit all over the place. Uh, my favorite one was um, the biggest thing we had to do was the national insignia had to get moved back back on the aircraft. It, it was a different national insignia but it was also a different location. And um, I remember we this must have been something they also struggled with in active duty uh, because we saw one Corsair where they looks like they simply wiped the old one off with gasoline and then reapplied it rear of the aircraft. But you could still see the ghost of the original one. You know, and John was like, well, we can do that. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was amazing to to see the guys like Ken Holiday and uh, Aaron Dak and those guys uh, 
I think they were pretty excited to get to work on it. Uh, you know, Ben, how did you feel those first few times we went over there and saw they were actually attacking the Corsair? <laughs> Besides maybe nervous. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. I, I, I think I was having... Uh bit of an opposite reaction. It's I've, I've been in museums uh, in one form or another for uh, about seven years. Um, and it's, it, it's a unique feeling, um, to see the work that you do, which is, you know, pr- you know, the work that you know, the work people like me do is predominantly, you know, digging into those files, v- you know, checking, you know, checking the, checking your conclusions, uh, making sure that you're on the ball, uh, that your sources line up, that, uh, you, you know, every, everything's just how it should be. Um, it's one thing to see that come together in an exhibit because Chris, you and I have worked on a couple of different exhibits now, but to see it uh, affecting, uh, and, and I mean this in a positive sense, of course, affecting an artifact, to see that artifact kind of being transformed uh, and being almost brought back to where it was, where it should be, um, that was a very unique feeling, and it was something really something to see the first uh, those the mock-ups for lack of a better term our our uh, our, our our people here did did a fantastic job uh you know making mock-ups and uh, to say this is what it's going to look like this is the size that we need and then to see that being see that become paint on the aircraft um yeah, yeah. basically to, to, to sum it up i found excuses to go over to the hangar yeah. uh whenever i could yeah, it was always fun. Uh, you know, it was interesting. Like, it really hit me the day that, like, Jeff Benedict, who uh, does a lot of our graphic work here, who did uh, basically like a vinyl stencil so we can get the markings laid out right. Um, the one day we went over to the Weeks hangar and we were over there laying out where everything was going to go. And uh, as a model builder, it was like the most, it was like, wow, this is like the coolest uh, uh, thing I'm ever going to get to help lay the markings out on because it's literally a real Corsair. Uh, and you're 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 making the markings you know look right and you know for us uh, especially in these days where social media is it is you got to get it right I mean you got to get it right to do uh, to hold true to the to the to the artifact and to do right by the artifact but you also want to do right because you know that the people involved in this story are going to come you know that future generations are going to want to see this so you you really want to i think that's where the pressure maybe came from as far as like markings is you could very easily screw it up and you're going to get one shot at making it right and we want to do that correctly well think about it i mean you're basically laying out the markings in the exact same way that the uh some navy tech on uh, the West Coast that was we were, doing. You what's know. funny is we, we, we laughed at us. We were probably more careful than the Navy Tech uh, <laughs> uh, the Navy Tech guys. I think they just were like, ah, eh, whatever. I've got to do 10 of these today uh, where we were like, oh, God, it's got to be, you know, we got to count panel lines and rivets. And, you know, it's got to hit the, 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 the number on the front 209, which we identified because it's written really big on the logbook. Uh, and we realized afterwards, like, oh, my God, this is the, the Navy uh, Museum told us, like, that's your that's your number that should go on the cowling. Right. Um, you know, it, it, ours was, I, I wonder if it was because ours was a replacement airplane. I don't know. Uh, but our number was bigger than a lot of the other numbers um, on the airplanes. Some of them, they kind of fit onto the cowling. Ours was bigger and actually went onto like the cow flaps. Uh, I mean, we have photos to back that up. I mean, we, we copied the photo. Um, but it was interesting watching like, well, the tube's got to hit this cow flap at this, <laughs> this part, you know. But uh, it was the ultimate uh, the ultimate decal set for a model. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was pretty awesome. <laughs> And and what is this? I mean, you've already talked a lot about the significance of the story uh, to to the to the Navy, to the military, to the obviously the families and everything. But uh, but what's the significance of, of being able to tell this kind of story uh, to a museum like ours? I, I I think for me, and I, I think um, 
I'll be interested to hear what Ben says too. Um, uh, there's two things. Uh, for me, I think that this is a great way to tell a story about um, maybe uh, some folks who are underrepresented in our in our society. Uh, it was an amazing way to tell the story of, of a little bit of Jesse Brown, a little bit of Tom Hudner, and the rest of the guys in that squadron. Um, I think what hit me is you know when you work on a project like this you fall in love with the story the subject you know i think when we were on hueys i think we we kind of uh were in love with the huey which which i i will always be but and then you kind of fall in love with your next subject you know you have to i think that's how you have to do these passionately and for me you know you get laser focused on on different aspects of an exhibit or the airframe or whichever but this really hit me hard is when we had the families here for the dedication. We were actually able to find the families, um, not just of Tom Hudner, uh, but uh, Savoli, uh, Brown, Jesse Brown's uh, grandson and great-granddaughters were here. And uh, on the left side of the aircraft, we have Tom Hudner's name. On the right side of the aircraft, we have Jesse Brown's name. Um, and to see, we, we allowed the family an opportunity, private session, to sit in the airplane. And... Um, to see Jesse Brown's great-granddaughters sitting in this airplane, looking down at his name stenciled on that that canopy rail or the, you know that side of the airplane, uh, he, he, again to use Tom's uh, phrase, uh, it got a little dusty. You know, um, that's uh, families being able to see them their fa- their own family lineage there. Other people able to come to our museum and see heroes being told about that maybe look a little bit more like them. Uh, I think that's important and. Uh, I'll tell one funny story, and then I'm going to turn over to Ben because I want to hear his thoughts on on the same thing. But um, there had been work going on because of an addition onto the museum for the Education Center, and there had been a lot of dust in the area. And I know Ben and the cleaning crew and others really did their best to clean up the area because some of the dust had gotten over into the to the exhibit construction in our own exhibit. You know, created dust, so everything got cleaned. The Corsair got brought in, and it's beautiful self. We got it cleaned up. Stephanie Zero got to even climb up and help uh, clean a little bit. Tom Hudner gets into the airplane that day and Ben's holding the ladder. I'm standing there to take a picture and he's sitting in the airplane and he gets emotional, but he doesn't say, wow, this is powerful or emotional. He says, boy, it's a little dusty in here. And I had not heard that phrase. And me and Ben mortified looking at each other going, <laughs> is it, oh my God, did somehow the airplane get dust in the cockpit, you know? And here he was talking about that. And for, but, but for a brief second, we had a pretty good uh, good scare. But uh, but Ben, you know, what is, what is this whole process meant to you about uh, of, of the exhibit? Well, um, I think in a, in a broader sense, um, I think there's a tendency, especially with large artifacts uh, like aircraft, um, there's, there's a tendency to, you know, get something very cool, something that looks cool, um, and you put it on the floor. You put a you put a piece of signage up that says this is what it is. Here's when it first flew, et cetera, et cetera, um, and and that's it. That that's you know the artifact is kind of there of its own accord, but the real power of artifacts comes from um, how they how they how they interact with people. Who designed this? Uh, who built it? Especially in, in the case of our collection, um, why did they build it? Who flew it? And and what was that person up to? What's what are their stories? And I think a, a huge 
part of what we do here at the museum is about connecting not only uh, you know our mem- our membership who are predominantly aviators or in or in the industry of some degree, but also just regular museum visitors, trying to make those uh, those personal connections that say there was a person in this aircraft, there was a person who built this aircraft, and in the case of our Corsair, there was a person who flew this aircraft, who put his life on the line for for his comrade. Uh, who did an extraordinary, went to extraordinary lengths. And I think that's what takes, you know, something in our collection from just something sitting on the floor, properly lit, dusted, and uh, with a piece of signage in front of it to something that has, that has real power uh, and hopefully leaves an impact on our visitors. Um, but in the case of this Corsair, I think especially was trying to, you know, not only let people know, you know, this is what happened with this aircraft, but... Um, the story of those people who are associated with it. Uh, in the case of Jesse Brown, I took a tremendous amount of uh, uh, of interest and inspiration from uh, his letters written to uh, friends and uh, his fiance and later wife uh, while he was in flight training. This is just at the tail end of World War II. Uh, the desegregation of the armed forces doesn't happen until just before uh, Jesse receives his his uh, his naval aviator's wings. He's talking about the struggles. He's talking about everything that he's that he's being put through. But he's also talking about um, the relation of one of our guests that we were lucky enough to have at our dedication, uh, his uh, his flight instructor, Roland Christensen. Um, both Roland and Jesse, in their respective memoirs, basically say no one wanted anything to do with with Jesse, the only the only African American in this group of naval cadets. And Roland Christensen, a true flight instructor in my book, is the guy who walks up to Jesse and says, you're going to be flying with me today. You know, get in the, you know, get up front. We'll show you how this thing works. And that was the first time Jesse ever flew. So it's, it's, it's those little pieces of the story that I really wanted to include in the exhibit that we built around this aircraft. Um, because I, it's, it, it circles back to what I said before. It's, it's, it's giving that artifact, you know, storytelling power and hopefully power to influence our visitors and, uh, and inspire them as to, you know, what these, what these artifacts represent in, in, from, a, from a personal perspective, that's from it. a human perspective. You're, you're spot on. I mean, and I think that's why when we look at markings on aircraft, it matters. You know, if we had a P-38, you know, any P-38, you know, in the museum, it's still cool. It's a P-38. It's super rare. Ours is done up to represent Richard Bong's Marge. That allows us to tell a much different story uh, that we could tell uh, about, you know, America's ace of aces and Marge and how old these folks were when they went to war. And, you know, the Huey, it, we, you know, we've, we've connected with our actual crew members. Uh, there are artifacts in that aircraft that are personal artifacts, you know, for them or represent things that they used in everyday life over there. So, um, and that's something else, you know, we went, and I think something me and Ben are very proud of, I, I, I hope here is, uh, you know, when I think when we both first kind of came into the positions that we're in, the Eagle Hangar was mainly World War II, and and rightly so. We get it. I mean, World War II was a huge war. It was a popular war, and it was a widely still talked about war. But as time goes on, we needed to be more inclusive of our other veterans of other conflicts. And now, um, you know, with the addition of the Huey and the Corsair, we, we now have Korea and Vietnam represented very well. Of course, Korea also has the Sabre and the MiG out there, but, uh, you know, the— um, uh, we now have World War One, you know, represented in the Eagle Hangar. So you've got a larger 
portion of that. And I, and I think down the road, you're going to see more and more personal stories told throughout the museum, not just an Eagle hanger throughout the whole museum, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of powerful stories to be told in combat. So, um, really proud of, of, of where we've come from, um, and, and where we're headed. Yeah. I just say for myself, you know, I, I've been giving tours in the museum, uh, since I've been here. So about 10 years now. And, um, you know, when I first started, uh, the the thing I would probably focus on the most in the Eagle Hangar was the XP-51 because it's the oldest one in existence. It was the first one delivered to the Army Air Force. That's in that, that's an incredible artifact, but it doesn't really tell... You could wrap a human story around it. You could talk about the people who built it. You could talk about the fact that North American delivered it, you know, ahead of, ahead of schedule and under budget and all, all, the, all the rest of it, but um, there isn't that really poignant human story to it. And I remember, you know, just kind of going through all the airplanes in the in the Eagle Hangar, and then I'd point to the Corsair, and they're like, eh, and that, that's a Corsair, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and now it's probably the most significant thing that we have. Honestly, I really think that the, at least the story of it is more significant than, than the XP, even though that's probably the rarest airplane we have in our collection. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, uh, I, think, I think a lot of... A lot of if you're if you're like us, I think I, I would classify myself included as an aviation geek. Uh, you know, you kind of come in and you look at the XP fifty one. You're like, oh my god, that that's you know significant, which it is. Um, I think what aircraft and stories like the ones that are associated with the Corsair, the Huey, and others are going to allow us to do is hopefully create more aviation geeks using those stories. Of, Isn't this amazing? This is a story associated with this artifact. You know. Come on in. You know the water's fine. Let, let's show you some more, uh, uh, some more cool stuff, and, and and hopefully that helps grow interest in history, aviation, uh, and more. So, um, anytime people are coming into our museum and they're walking away, maybe learning a little bit more about people like Jesse Brown, Todd Hudner, uh, you know, the rest of the folks uh, throughout this museum, uh, you know, world's a better place. So, and, and I would say, you know, for the for the bulk of our collection, um, every aircraft has has a story. Sometimes, yes, you get stupid lucky uh, like we did with our Corsair that not only that it has the story but we've got the documentation to back it up we've got the resources and the people who can help us verify uh, the documents that we have um, but I think if you, I think if you dig deep enough you're willing to put the put the legwork in you could find something just phenomenal about every single aircraft in our collection. That's why they're part of our collection. Um, they're not only significant uh, for being a certain type. Uh, you know, if, if I were to throw out uh, Arnold Ebenezer's E1, um, an aircraft that I believe still holds, you know, a a a point to point distance in its weight class. You know, that's a phenomenal story about just one man deciding that that was the airplane he was going to build. Um, but aircraft significant to us as an organization uh, and what we do at EAA, uh, but also just aircraft that were special to somebody or that that was a part of their life. And in the case of our Corsair, this was a part of the lives of of uh, men who knew America's first na uh, African-American naval aviator and the man who tried to save his life. And I think that's really, at the end of the day, what's special about our Corsair and our collection here in Oshkosh. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a human story behind every airplane. I think as, uh, I'm just, again, speaking for myself, as I've kind of refined my tour over the years, it's, it's been much more about the human stories than anything about any airplane. Um, and, and yeah, I, I, I think especially, we're especially lucky with this Corsair because, um, this is something we haven't really talked about, but I mean, 
there wasn't really a there, there there wasn't a version of the Tuskegee Airmen that the Navy had. So it was a much different story of integration in the Navy. It, you know, the first black aviator flew in an integrated unit alongside white pilots who, you know, when when push came to shove, just saw him as a any other squadron mate. Yeah, I I feel that I I feel that Jesse Brown got lucky in a way. Um, to be with the men uh, that he was with in VF-32 because they seem like quality guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I certainly can't speak for, for them, uh, but in all the, the things that we've, we've read about and learned about, uh, they, were, they, were standing up guy, they were stand-up guys. And, um, you know, I, I think people like that hopefully bring out the best in all of us. Uh, and Jesse was a stand-up guy as well. And... Uh, um, it's just a wonderful story. I know the movie is going to come out October 14th, 2022. Yep, the movie's called Devotion. It's based on the Adam Makos book. Adam Makos. Of the same name, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Devotion, uh, the book. Adam Makos uh, was was actually helped us. The Makos family, I shouldn't say just Adam, but uh, uh, they also helped us with the exhibit. Um, we have this beautiful print, uh, sort of blown up into hero size, as I call it, uh, that kind of depicts uh, the, uh, the, the Hudner's crash landing. Um you know, they, they shared stories with us, some of the contact information for the families. Uh, they've just been really wonderful, as well as, like I said, museums like the National Museum of Naval Aviation, uh, National Museum of the Marine Corps, uh, who, it's not their airplane, um, but they took the time to to make sure that uh, they could help any way they could to make sure that we got it right and uh, really appreciate their help. Hey, you mentioned, uh, you know, Jesse's squad mates and that, and, and you mentioned incidentally, Chris, all the reasons we wanted to call them out in the exhibit too. Um, we do have a panel that are you know, it is just miniature bios. And while we couldn't locate it directly next to the, the logbook entries that we scanned, um, we wanted to make that connection that these are the guys who flew this airplane. These are the guys, uh, who knew Jesse and Tom, um, but I think how that I, I think that particular aspect also works in, in our case, um, not only because it is that human story, but I think it sends a, it, it, my goal as a curator was trying to trying to send a message here. Tom is the way you put it. Uh, you know, when he got into the squadron, when he's flying, you know, Bearcats and eventually Corsairs for the Navy off of aircraft carriers, um, he's 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 become one of the guys, as I've heard you've put it before, Chris. Um, the only way that Jesse Brown, the man, matters to these guys is, is this someone I want to fly with? And I think that that sort of brotherhood, that sense of camaraderie, I think that goes just beyond the Navy, just beyond, um, you know, what colors this guy's skin. And I think that ties really well into into EAA in some way. And I'm sorry if I'm going off script here, for lack of a better term, but Chris, as you mentioned, come on in, the water's fine. This is something, this is a story that I think needs more exposure that, you know, this 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 man, Jesse Brown, went through so much adversity because he wanted to fly. He, he had so many obstacles placed in his path. and But when he got there, and he got there through the support, uh, and he stayed there with the support of other guys who flew. I think that's a really powerful story. That uh, that's that's what he chased, and that's where he found himself uh, in the company of of friends, fellow aviators. And I think that was a real that was a really great, you know, reason for us to be able to tell that story alongside of our Corsair. I think when we're, when we're all doing it together, we're we're all at a better place. You know, I, I think that goes for a lot of things, but aviation is certainly uh, that when everybody's free to, to be part of it and encouraged and we support one another, um, that's when we're at our best. Absolutely. Well, I, th- I think 
part of what you guys are saying is it kind of subverts our narrative of that period in history that, you know, it doesn't matter when you look in, you know, in, in history, be our country or the, or the world, you'll always find decent people. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, I think that's a great, I think that's a great uh, conclusion to pull out of this story. Absolutely. So for we're, we're airing this episode just before air venture here, um, you know, as we record this, it's the last week of June. Um, for those who are coming to, uh, to AirVenture and want to see our Corsair, uh, will there be an opportunity to see that? I know that we, we kind of dice up the museum and use it for different events during the show. Um, but is, um, is that some, something there will be an opportunity for? Absolutely. I think there's going to be limited uh, times where you are able to uh, see the Corsair exhibit, possibly through the Education Center. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to sound like I'm making a pitch for the museum, but uh, I am. Um, you know, seeing the museum in its own right outside of the AirVenture time frame is always wonderful. Um, you know, seeing the museum uh, during AirVenture is a little bit like trying to see someone's house during the biggest Christmas party they're ever going to host. But uh, uh, this museum is wonderful and there's a lot of treasures in it. I always encourage people to come see us outside of AirVenture as well. Um, you want to come here to see the speakers and everything that's going on in the museum uh, during AirVenture, but uh, it, it, it it's worth seeing as a, as a destination on its own as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if you do come uh, during the off-season, uh, feel free to look us up while you're here. Yeah. Uh, just uh, go up to the desk and <laughs> see if one of us is around. And if we have time, we'll definitely come out and uh, uh, say hi and uh, maybe even show you some uh, some stuff inside the museum. Absolutely. Uh, we're right always on. happy to do that. I could definitely say it's my, one of my favorite parts of my job. So. Same. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, Ben, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us as a, as a guest. Uh, Chris, thank you for uh, doing double duty, as, uh, as you often do. And this is just another one of, like I said, uh, I, I really do think the history finds you and us um, uh, just as much as we find the history. So um, I really appreciate you guys coming on for a, a very uh, – uh, a very powerful story and a very um, a very unique artifact that we uh, that we have here in the museum. Um, so with that, uh, uh, just to kind of wrap things up here, uh, Chris ha- um, is still handling the scheduling for the for the podcast. Uh, so he's uh, he's doing the doing the calendar and uh, getting the getting the schedules on the agenda. Uh, Scott is running our board today and also does the post production for the uh, f- for the podcast. And then we have our, our marketing and uh, and our publications team uh, handle the distribution. Um, if those of you who are uh, who are listening, if uh, if you like what you're hearing, please do leave us a review. If you don't like what you're hearing, leave us a review too. Tell us what we could do better. Uh, feedback at ea.org is always a, a good place to leave that. Um, and uh, with that, um, AirVenture is rapidly approaching. Uh, so uh, we will uh, we'll see you here if you if you make it here. And uh, and regardless, we will catch you next time when you are cleared to land on the green dot. <laughs>